All right, welcome to the Make America Garrett Again podcast, your cure for the mainstream media. This show is your safe space to talk about persuasion, politics, and the effect they have on your life and liberty. Welcome back for test episode three. We've got new and improved music, and with the change in music, we're also going to try to change the show up a little bit today. I was listening to the first two episodes, and I'm going back to those, and I'm thinking they were really heavy on a lot of research and a lot of pros and cons about one particular topic. I got to thinking, if you're listening to this show, you're probably pretty well informed, and you're probably interested to hear a different perspective on these things. We're going to go a little bit more unscripted. I'm just going to go through uh, a couple of the current events, some things that have been happening in the news over the past couple of weeks, and going to talk about those and give you some of my thoughts and some of my commentary on what's going on around those and what some of those things really mean. And I'm expecting that to be a little bit more insightful and hopefully a little bit more exciting and a little bit more entertaining to listen to. So as always, uh, reach out to me, let me know what you think, and we're going to make this show as entertaining and informative as it can possibly be when we do the official launch and you start coming in and listening to this podcast on a weekly basis. With that being said, everything we're going to talk about in this show, every episode, every story, every topic is going to come back to three main principles, peace, property rights, and free markets. We're going to continue to talk about those things as this podcast goes on, and we're going to take time to talk about what they mean, why they're important, and why everything can come back to those things. It allows the most freedom, the most opportunity and the best overall results for everyone involved. With that being said, let's just jump right in. If you've paid any attention to the news over the past few weeks, you've heard of Jesse Smollett, everything that went on with him. Uh, In case you didn't hear, um, January 22nd, he says he got a letter, and it was threatening him and you know threatening his life, and there was a white powder in it. Later, they found out that that powder was Tylenol. And then a week later, he says that he was jumped and beat up at like 2 o'clock in the morning by two white guys wearing MAGA hats, and that they were yelling uh, racist and homophobic slurs at him, and they told him that this is MAGA country. It got kind of big in the news for obvious reasons. None of us like to hear anything about any kind of racist attack or anything like that, and we would hope that in this day and age, that those hate crimes would go away. But immediately, a lot of people started to say, you know, some of this stuff doesn't sound right. And even the people in the neighborhood said, this is a really liberal neighborhood. We wouldn't expect two guys running around in MAGA hats to even be a thing. And, you know, he said that he got beat up for a couple minutes and he was only off of, out of the view of security cameras for like a minute. Just a lot of it didn't sit well with people. When I first heard about this and I started hearing some of the rumors that people thought that he was faking and stuff like that, I didn't want to say anything. I really don't know anything about him personally. I did not watch the show Empire. I wasn't familiar with his character, who he was, or anything like that. And when somebody says something like that happened to them, your first instinct is, man, this is horrible. Like, I, I, I can't imagine accusing somebody of lying right away, but when people start pointing out all of these weaknesses in the story and all of these flaws in the testimony that he gave, it starts to make you wonder a little bit. So I kind of watched and paid attention a little bit more as things picked up. At first, I figured it was one of those things that people were going to get away with it and we would never know who did it and we would never know if it really happened or not. And it would just be one of those things. But instead, the evidence really snowballed against him pretty quickly and Once it came out that he had hired these two Nigerian brothers 
to orchestrate this with him, uh, those guys came clean really quickly, and they didn't want anything to do with any of the legal trouble that was going to get worse from there. I was actually pretty shocked to see the news cover it as much as they did. I expected the news just to drop it, not to talk about it anymore, and just to kind of shove it under the rug and and let it go because of how bad that it was going to look toward the narrative that so many of them push. But I think that with all of the issues coming out of Virginia, where all of these politicians were getting caught with some racist kind of stuff in their history, I think that maybe this Jussie Smollett thing was a was a welcome distraction and that it was a chance for them to kind of take some heat off of the people who are really making policy and who are really able to make a little bit more difference in the world and to kind of focus it on an actor who is not nearly as well known across the country and somebody who, you know, could very well be kind of slipping out of the spotlight. Now, obviously, people are going to ask the question, you know, why would you do something like that? Why would somebody make up such a horrible story and tell such a terrible lie and then to make matters worse, perhaps, is not to follow through with their story very well and not to tie up any of the loose ends and to leave so much evidence out there that it it was a hoax when the damage of being found out is so much worse than the damage that, that might happen if the story were to believe to be true. I think a lot of this goes back to the way that the media operates. The mainstream media, uh, especially cable news, has figured out, especially in the past five or ten years, that confirmation bias is a huge way to develop and retain a really loyal fan base. Confirmation bias is when you are looking out for things that reinforce your opinion. It may be certain facts that you're going to cling to. It may be certain ideas or certain perspectives or the opinions of certain people. We're all guilty of this because we all think that we are right. You wouldn't talk about something if you didn't think you were right. And we all have this picture of the world in our minds and how the world works and how things operate and cause and effect of all kinds of different things. And this could be your favorite sports team. This could be your favorite food. It could be the way that you look at politics, the way that you look at religion, any of those things that you have any kind of opinion on, you are going to naturally gravitate toward people and ideas and positions that reinforce that you are correct. Perfect example of this would be the New England Patriots, right? Everybody either loves the Patriots or they hate them. And if you hate the Patriots, it's because they cheat and it's because they've been caught bending the rules and it's because the refs always give them the good call. So whenever you see something and the ball bounces their way or something a little bit funny happens with the clock or whatever, maybe somebody who is more of a Patriots fan would just say, well, that stuff happens sometimes. You're going to know that that's proof and that that's just reinforcing what you already know, that these guys are terrible and that they are nothing but cheaters. The news has figured out that they can use this to their advantage as well. It feels good for somebody to tell you that your opinions on politics and your opinions on how the world should be run and how people should treat each other and how you should interact with one another, it feels good to know that you're right about that, that you were right all along. So the mainstream media has dialed in more and more to certain groups of people that they want to speak to. 
So on your one side, you're going to have you know Fox News telling you that the conservatives know the best way to run the country and that Republicans have your best interest at heart and that all the Democrats are going to do is that they're out there just to get in the way and that they just want to let illegals and drugs just overrun our country and that they want to abort all the babies. And, you know, it's just going to become this dystopian wasteland because of all of the horrible things that they want to let happen. And then you flip your channel over to MSNBC where they're telling you that Trump is an evil dictator and that the Republicans want the corporations to take over and that they want to take away all of the rights of anybody who is not a white male. And of course, I'm exaggerating, but probably not as much as uh, I wish I were. But hey, it feels good to feel like you're smart and to have the quote unquote professionals on the TV telling you that you were right all along, that, that Donald Trump is exactly who you thought he was and that these senators are exactly who you knew they were from the beginning and that everything and that everybody on your team wants to do what's right and everybody on the other team just wants to burn the world down. Now, this is kind of a good thing because it helps us to find a group of people that have similar interests to ours. Humans are very, we're very tribal kind of animals and we like to put people in different groups and we like to have everybody in a certain kind of box where we can put a label on them and know what we think about this person and what other kind of similar people we can group them in with. And we also look for people who we deem to be similar to us so that those are the people that, that we can communicate with and that we can stay with. Sometimes it can be things uh, more superficial, like how much money somebody makes or where they live or what they look like, uh, how well-dressed they are. And other times, uh, especially as you get to know people better, it can also be, you know, where they work, what they do at work, um, what kind of hobbies they have. All of us have friends that we would have never, ever considered to be friends with if we didn't know them from that one place, right? You're friends with people at work that you would have probably never dreamed of speaking to in your life if it weren't for the fact that you spend 40 hours a week together and you know the kind of struggles that one another has in the field of work that you do. Again, being grouped together, it, it's not necessarily a bad thing because it does give us a little bit of sense of community. And when you're talking about political ideas, it helps us to be in a place where we can have conversations with people who have similar ideas to us. And we can you know, kind of weigh those things up against each other and we can reinforce each other's arguments and make sure that we are airtight in defending our position whenever that conversation comes up. Obviously, on the other hand, this can also be a bad thing because it really divides us and it helps protect us against any outside views that might contradict what we believe. And that can be for better or for worse. Social media has exacerbated this in a massive, massive way. How many times have you seen the phrase that if you think blank, you can just unfriend me now? Sometimes you're going to run into people who literally don't want to hear any other view than their own. And if you disagree with them, they very quickly, they start name calling and they start shutting you down. And those kind of people, as we talked about in the last episode, you're not going to be able to change those people's minds. Those people are so emotional and so set in their beliefs that it's not worth having a conversation with these people. 
maybe you want to do it just for fun sometimes. Maybe you can't help yourself and you've just got to throw in one comment there. But you're not going to change those people's minds about the way that they feel because they are not interested at all in being changed and allowing any other kind of outside thought to influence this ideology that they have built and protected so well. So you can have conversations with those kind of people. Sometimes those conversations can be really fruitful when you have someone else watching you. Uh, you might be debating somebody online or you know, maybe even in person at work or something like that, and it's not the person that you're speaking to that's going to be changed. Most likely, they are too busy trying to formulate their next argument against you to even hear what you're trying to put out against them. And when you're saying something to them, they're just listening to it just enough to make sure that they can shut it down and tell you why that that's wrong. But... There's always a third person. There's always somebody else who is sitting quietly or reading quietly, and they're the ones who may be more eager to learn. And those are the people that you're going to reach out to and you know help them to understand uh, a little bit more rounded view of things. And, and as we're going to talk about on this show, that things are never as simple as black and white, that it's always there's always something more going on behind the scenes, and there's always some other principle that's behind that. And that's why... On this show, we have the principles of peace, property rights, and free markets, and everything that we do is going to go back to those things, and, and we're going to ask ourselves, is this hurting anybody? Is this you know, taking something from anybody, or, or is it hindering the way that they do business with anybody? So when we're around people like us or we're reading news sources that agree with us, that's always going to be confirmation bias, and we're always going to be drawn to that. And it's, it's natural. It's not anything that you're going to be able to stop. It's not anything that you're going to be able to avoid. It's just one of those little quirks about the way that our brains are programmed that you're always going to have to be mindful of. So whenever we are in those situations where we're reading things that agree with us, or we're talking with people that agree with us, we have to try to be a little bit mindful and ask ourselves, is this just confirmation bias? Am I just looking for things to tell me I'm right? Or am I really trying to learn about the issue at hand? On the other hand, while we have confirmation bias, the opposite of that or the the flip side of that coin is cognitive dissonance. And cognitive dissonance is when something that happened when something happens that goes against your preconceived notions. And one example of this might be that you know you you're a pretty good driver and you you know what you're doing behind the wheel. And you're always safe and you always pay attention to your surroundings. But then this morning in the parking lot, you you backed into the person behind you and it scratched their car up a little bit. Immediately, you start asking yourself, well, what happened? How did that, how did I do that? I, I know better than that. And maybe then suddenly you think about how somebody was walking by in front of you and they distracted you. Or maybe the person behind you parked a little bit closer than they should have to you or whatever. And then maybe you tell yourself, well, it's just a little scratch. It's not even that big of a deal anyway. Maybe I don't even need to tell them. Whatever that is, the action that happened collided with your viewpoint that you were a great driver. Um, Another example of this might be, you know, maybe you just flat out spell your name wrong or maybe you forget your address and you A lot of times we'll tell ourselves, well, I haven't had my coffee yet. You know, I shouldn't be doing, you shouldn't make me do anything before I've had coffee anyway. That's an example of the way that you would try to explain something away like that. And the same thing happens not just with one person, not just with individuals, but it happens with groups of people as well. 
everyone knew during the 2016 election, everybody knew that Hillary Clinton was going to win, right? 2016 was a little bit different kind of time than we had ever had before because we had just had eight years of Barack Obama being president. You know, the media skews pretty liberal for the most part. You've got a couple places like Fox News or whatever holding down the conservative Republican side. But for the most part, all of these journalists and a lot of these these places are going to lean to the left and they're going to kind of push a, a more leftist kind of narrative. And with Barack Obama, he was somebody that we hadn't had in a long time in our American politics because he didn't really have much of a political history. When you're talking about people like George Bush or um, Bob Dole, you can look at their record that they had as a politician in previous jobs and previous roles. And a lot of these people had been in the news for other things over the years, for, for stands that they'd taken on something or for controversies that they had been part of or missteps where they had screwed something up. And these things kind of follow them through. But on the other hand, with Barack Obama, this guy who hadn't even been a senator for very long, nobody really knew who he was when he just kind of seemed to appear almost out of thin air for the Democratic primaries in 2008. So there wasn't that kind of baggage that followed along with him. And a lot of those things where people had so many preconceived notions about who he was or what kind of controversy he brought with him, none of that stuff was there. And so... The, the liberal side of the media really had a blank slate to work with. And they had this person that they could prop up there as being faultless and being perfect and not having anything to drag him down. And that was really what set him apart from the other candidates. And, you know, it really came down to him and Hillary Clinton then. And there's already this, this reputation that Hillary had of being someone who was constantly being followed by scandal and, and who had been, you know, rude to a lot of people and just didn't have a good reputation at all. And she's going up against a guy who has a a perfectly golden reputation. And perhaps to make matters even worse, what a lot of the Republicans were, were complaining about him was that he was, you know, some sort of secret Muslim who was going to be working undercover for the Muslims to take over our country or that he was the Antichrist. And that he was the biblical apocalypse personified. And those things don't hold up very well if you're talking about political ideas and winning elections. And obviously, those things don't hold a lot of water when you're talking about somebody just trying to win a bunch of votes in an election. So it was really easy for the media to kind of anoint him as the front runner and then to as they helped push him into the presidency, they were able to take this presidency and they were able just to run with it because, again, there were no previous scandals. There was nothing that people were setting up to fight him on as he took office and, and things that people were looking to hold him against, hold against him and his administration. So it was really easy for the media to downplay anything bad that happened and to you know uplift and glorify everything good. And they were able to really, really push this narrative that he was the perfect president. And going back to the principles that we have on this show, there were some things that he did good and some things that he did bad. And I'm going to have plenty to complain about about any president. But the media had eight solid years of someone who they had set up to be the perfect candidate and that they were able to keep that narrative going. 
Now, if you do anything for eight years, you're going to get used to it. So it should be no surprise that after eight years, when the media kind of decides that it's Hillary's turn and it's, it's going to be time for this woman to be the next president and they anoint her to be the successor to Barack Obama, they decide that that's how it's going to be. And suddenly they, we find out that, you know, they were lying about a lot of the poll results and that perhaps Donald Trump had more quiet supporters than anybody had suspected and the electoral votes roll in and suddenly he's the president. That is a massive cause for cognitive dissonance, right? We knew Hillary was going to win. We knew Hillary was the next one. We have always had our way. We have always chosen who's going to be in line and what the story is going to be. And this story was Madam President 2016. What happened? And when you're faced with that cognitive dissonance, you've got to go searching for answers. And sometimes those answers, they don't necessarily have to make sense. They don't necessarily have to be the correct answer. I mean, I think we've all seen somebody do something stupid and then they, they backtrack over themselves trying to make up for that stupid thing they did and they look even sillier than they did in the first place. That's exactly what the media did with this and they started searching for things. What could have happened? What could it be? And that's when you start seeing this Russia narrative pop up and it had to be the Russians and we're going to find every kind of connection that we can find between Donald Trump and the Russians and we're going to take these things and we're going to, we're going to get him and we're going to impeach him. And here we are over two years into his presidency and there really hasn't much been able to come from that. There's been a lot of searching and a lot of digging, but the guy's still president. You know, he's still standing. The media has taken this entire presidency and it's been a reaction to the fact that they weren't able to choose who the next president was going to be and that their narrative turned out to be wrong. So they have to push back to correct that narrative. And so you see them pushing things like, you know, the, the KKK is rising again and that this is a, a racist country and that there are, are race wars, you know, just on the brink of happening at all times. And that if we don't put a stop to all of this and find a way to clamp down on it, that, you know, we're, we're going to lose our country and that people are not going to be safe here anymore. And again, this podcast isn't here to carry any water for Trump. Don't get me wrong. We're going to complain about Trump and a lot of the things that he does plenty here. But when I look at these things, I'm looking at them from my principles. I'm looking at, is he protecting people's property rights? Is he being peaceful? You know, is he hurting anyone? Uh, is he keeping the market free? Those are things that I'm concerned about when I evaluate how he's performing. And if he tweets something mean about a journalist or he says something inappropriate, I could really care less about that. That doesn't really mean anything to me because it's just insignificant. After this backlash and the media has has driven this narrative that you know Trump supporters are out to get you and the Republicans are out to take over the country and that you are not safe. I mean, they're, they're really appealing to people's safety with this. And if you hear anything enough times, you might believe it. And I think that there are genuinely people who are buying into this narrative that it's not safe out there. And for the most part, when the reality is, for the most part, our lives outside of social media and outside of politics really aren't that different than they were three or four years ago. 
you still go out and talk to your neighbors. You still talk to your coworkers. You still get along with these people. There's, there's not this war brewing that the media is trying to portray, but if that's what your worldview is and that that's what they're pushing, it causes cognitive dissonance when you walk out your front door and you look at a peaceful world. Going back to Jesse Smollett, this is my theory. Again, I don't know him. I haven't followed him a whole lot. You can take this or leave it. I have a feeling that maybe he had been told so many times that he really did believe that there were people who were out to get him because he was a black man and that there were people out there who wanted to hurt him because he was a gay man and he felt this fear so much and he believed this so much that when it didn't become a reality, maybe he snapped and felt the need to make it a reality and that he was so confused because of this dissonance that he had to do something to validate that feeling that was within him. Um, again, I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a therapist. I don't know the guy. But to, to hear that he was still swearing up and down that this is the truth after they've all but debunked it. They said that back on his show, he was breaking down on the set and he was bawling his eyes out in tears and he was sobbing and wailing and he was apologizing to everybody and telling them that they still needed to believe him and that they couldn't hardly get any filming done because he was such an emotional wreck. And to me, that sounds like someone who is genuinely hurt and someone who is genuinely going through some kind of uh, mental and emotional torment. I'm curious if he didn't hear this so much from the media that he had to do something to make it a reality because he was so distraught over the world that he saw on the television versus the world that, that maybe he was experiencing in real life. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he is just a pathological liar. Maybe this is all a setup. Maybe he's just doubling down because there's nothing else to do at this point. I could be wrong, but when I see the way that he's acting, the the emotion comes off to me as as real in a way. And so I'm I'm tempted to give him a little bit of the benefit of the doubt for perhaps it's more of a mental health problem than just somebody completely being malicious and you know, if that's the case, then I think the media has a lot to do with it and they they should bear some of that responsibility. Moving on, I have uh, an article here about Trump's visit to the summit in Hanoi, Vietnam, where he met with Kim Jong-un to talk about hopefully a little bit more peace with North Korea. And these talks came to an end suddenly. We know that they were there and that they were talking and something happened that was a deal breaker and it caused Trump to walk away. And there were three different stories here that were given after all of this happened. Now, they have said that they're going to hopefully get back together and meet again, but as of right now, nothing was changed in how we're going to operate with them moving forward. So I'm going to read this here from this article, the U.S. version of events. According to President Trump, the split came entirely on the basis of North Korea's demand for full sanctions relief. Though he dodged some reporters' questions seeking specifics, he gave the impression that the North Korean proposal was close to the Yongbyon nuclear reactor but only for full lifting of all international sanctions. Trump walked away at this point. Trump said that there was a basic agreement to have more talks in the future and that the U.S. and North Korea would continue to talk until a future meeting. North Korea's version. 
Foreign Minister Ri Yong-ho said Trump's claim was inaccurate. He says North Korea offered to dismantle all its nuclear material production, including everything around Yongbyon, and was only asking for partial sanction relief. It was at this point that Trump walked away. Uh, Ri acted like he was much less hopeful of future talks, saying that North Korea's position isn't going to change and that right now North Korea believes that the U.S. is not ready to make a deal. However, North Korea's media came out a little bit better and they said they do anticipate future talks would happen. We have two different stories here, not too terribly different, but uh, North Korea is saying that they only wanted partial sanctions lifted and that uh, the U.S. wanted full sanction relief. However, plot twist, a third story has come out from South Korea. Former South Korean unification minister Chong Se-hyun, however, suggests that neither of these was the real problem. Instead, John Bolton showed up at the last minute and started demanding that North Korea not only provide a full accounting of its nuclear program's past, but also full accounts of North Korea's chemical and biological weapons, too. Interestingly, this didn't immediately derail the talks, but it led North Korea to ask for more sanctions relief in return. It was at that point, apparently, that the U.S. walked away. This South Korean story makes a lot more sense than any of the other things did. Anytime we talk about foreign relations on this podcast, anytime we talk about any, any nations that are at war or looking to go to war or on the brink of some sort of military action, I'm always going to go back to the fact that you shouldn't hurt other people unless you're defending yourself. My principle is peace, not pacifism. But peace, you don't hurt people and you don't take their stuff. And that goes for people in other countries as well as people in our own country. Um, One of the unique things about Donald Trump was that he ran his campaign on a lot more peace and a lot more non-intervention. Several times he tweeted about Barack Obama that he needed to pull these troops out of these other countries and that it wasn't doing the U.S. any good and that we were going to put America first and that all of these different wars that we were fighting and all of these different places that we were meddling in were just hurting our trade relationships and they were just stretching our military too thin and spending a lot of money on other places that didn't benefit America. And this is something that especially the Republicans have a real problem with. It was refreshing to see somebody, really the first person since Ron Paul before, who had talked about these wars in a way that really spoke to how it affected people and how it affected the U.S. in the future. It used to be that the Democrats were the anti-war party, but as Barack Obama bombed a whole lot of countries, he dropped bombs every single day that he was in office for eight years, the, the Democrats became much much warmer to this pro-war side as well. And so it was nice to hear Donald Trump kind of campaigning on we need to stop this. This isn't doing us any good. This is actually hurting a lot of people and it's making things worse in America as well. But Donald Trump promised to drain the swamp and then he filled his cabinet with all kinds of neocons. He brought in John Bolton um, over the past year or so. And John Bolton is one of those guys who has never seen a war that he didn't want to get into. And if there's a chance for us to put troops on the ground somewhere, we're going to do it. And when we talk about North Korea, it's really easy to look at Kim Jong-un and think, this guy's a jerk. 
you know, this little punk has been threatening us and he's been saying horrible things and he's, he said he's going to bomb our country and we need to just go over there and wipe that country off the map, you know, take out everything. And that's the easiest thing to jump to. But what you've got to remember is North Korea is a horrible place to live. There are 25 million people who are trapped in that country basically as prisoners of war. And they're not allowed to communicate with the outside world. Most of them don't have enough food to eat. Their jobs come from the government, but sometimes there's not enough work to do or not enough money to pay them to feed their families. And if we go to war with North Korea, if we put sanctions, we already have sanctions, on North Korea, that's hurting those people. Kim Jong-un is a chunky guy. He's eating just fine. There are 25 million other people in his country, many of whom are starving to death. And the mothers will sometimes even make the kids mud pies so that they have something to put on their stomachs because there's not enough food. Kim Jong-un's doing just fine. So when you cut off any imports of food going to them, or when you cut off coal that they're exporting for money to China, you're not hurting Kim Jong-un. And trust me, if we go to war with North Korea... We're not hurting Kim Jong-un. It's not his life that's going to be lost on the front lines. It's going to be these other people who are malnourished and who have their rights violated every single day. So it's really easy to root against Donald Trump if you don't like him and you want him to fail. Or it's really easy to root against Kim Jong-un and hope that Trump comes in and bombs him off the map. But the most important thing to remember, and and this is going to be a recurring theme on this show, is that there are people in that country who are hurting and who are going to be hurt worse as the tensions rise. So any kind of open conversation that we can have with them, any kind of open trade that we can have with them, this is a positive thing for the people of North Korea. I, for one, am hoping that the talks continue and the negotiations go on as well as they possibly could so that you can open up more trade with these people and that you can get more goods into that country and and trade their goods, and everyone benefits from that. And most importantly, where goods cross borders, armies do not. And that's going to be the best way to liberate those people and to give them freedom and to open them up to our ideas so that they can have more freedom. And perhaps in a natural, organic way, things are going to get better for them. Because I can promise you, if we go to war and we bomb North Korea off the map, things are not going to get better for them. And you can see that same thing happen everywhere else where we go in and we put troops on the ground and we overthrow whatever government's in place and try to replace it with something else. There are always horrible negative side effects, and a lot of times we leave those countries a lot worse than they were when we entered them. So, whenever you hear about Trump talking with Kim Jong-un, this is a good thing conversation is good. The fact that we even sent a president over to shake the guy's hand and talk to him, that's a big deal. And, you know, maybe Trump says some nice things about him and says he's a smart guy and that upsets a lot of people. But if you can fluff the ego of one dictator to hopefully make life a little bit better for 25 million prisoners of war, that's something that I'm okay with. But unfortunately, one of the concerns that a lot of people have about Trump is that he seems to have the same opinion as whoever the last guy he talked to has. And he is surrounded by guys like John Bolton who want to go to war with everybody possible. And, you know, 
they're looking for a reason to fight with Iran. And as we're going to talk about next week, uh, we're also looking to try to go into Venezuela to, uh, you know, send troops in there as well. And sometimes it seems like we take one step forward and two steps back. But I'm looking forward to talking about this with you on a regular basis here. Last but not least, we'll wrap up with Donald Trump has declared a national emergency to get the money that he needs to build the border wall with Mexico. It looks like Congress is moving to vote against this veto. There have been a handful of Republicans, the biggest name of which has been Rand Paul. And man, conservatives are shredding him to pieces online. If you read the comments on any of the things that he posts to Facebook or Twitter, people are furious with this guy that he has gone against the wishes of Donald Trump and that he has gone against the wishes of a lot of the same people in his party. But the reason he has done this is because this issue has been debated in Congress for probably even over a year and we can't come to a consensus about it. And there were several times when other budgets were passed where the money would have been available to put toward the wall and nobody made a big deal about it. But now that the Democrats have the House and there's things are a little bit more even and everything can be surrounded by more drama, they're using the wall as a means to, to pick back and forth at each other. Now, it looks like the Senate is moving to try to block this national emergency. And they are saying that it's not a real emergency and that this needs to be fought out in the legislature some more. And a handful of Republicans have gone in on this and they have also said that they're going to vote against it. And the last count I saw was that they have 51 votes, uh, which is going to be enough for them to try to block this national emergency measure by Donald Trump. The, The reason that a Republican... Uh, really a libertarian like Rand Paul is going against this is because it's not the constitutional model for getting things done. The National Emergencies Act was passed in uh, 1975, 1976, something like that. And it circumvented the Constitution and allowed the president to make special circumstances where money would be allowed for a certain amount of time for something that he deemed to be an emergency. The problem with this is any law that circumvents the Constitution is illegal. The Constitution is the law of the land, and that's the law that you are supposed to follow at all times. We're going to talk on this show plenty about the fact that that's not always how things happen. Forty years ago, they passed that law that was unconstitutional, and we've just been running with it ever since. And there are plenty of things that they do that violate the Constitution, and this national emergency is one of them. Every single national emergency that's been declared by a president has violated the Constitution, but Congress has allowed it because what that does is it allows them to pass the blame on to somebody else. If voters complain about the way that money was spent or how a situation was handled— It's easier for Congress to say, well, you know, that was out of my hands. I didn't have anything to do with that. That was the president's call, and and we went along with it because we respected the president. And that's not the way that it's supposed to work. These representatives and these senators are supposed to represent their voters, and they're supposed to take the responsibility for making the law, and they're supposed to take the responsibility for passing a budget and directing funds where they're supposed to go. Instead, because there's gridlock... The president is just going to to go around all of that to fund something that he thinks is important. Now, I don't care whether or not you want a wall. It doesn't make a difference to me. 
I would be fine with building a wall. The problem is we're $22 trillion in debt right now. We don't have a lot of money to spare for a wall. And they just keep printing and borrowing and spending money like we're swimming in it. And that couldn't be further from the truth. When we talk about borrowing more money to build a wall and Congress, whose job it is to decide whether or not we need it and whether or not we have the money for it, can't even come to a consensus on that, a national emergency is the wrong way to go about that. So the Senate's going to vote to block this. And what's probably going to happen is Donald Trump is going to veto it. There's a good chance that this emergency could go into effect anyway. It may to go to the Supreme Court. Maybe Trump doesn't veto it. Maybe he signs it and allows it to go through and decides that he's going to play ball with Congress once more. Uh, he hasn't vetoed anything yet since he's been president, if I recall correctly. And he puts himself out as this great negotiator and as this person who's willing to work with people if they're willing to work with him and that he's going to get the best deal. So we'll see how he tries to spin this to see if, you know, he wants to act tough and fight against Congress on it or if he's going to going to play ball and going to try to to look a little bit more willing to to bridge across the line because you also need to remember 2020 elections are coming up. He's going to be running for re-election and the Democrats are gunning for him. And he needs to be putting himself into a position where he can let the voters and anybody who's to the center know that he's a guy who's willing to get things done and that his tenure in office isn't just going to be drama and gridlock. With that being said, I love gridlock. Gridlock is a good thing. Um, This country is not a democracy. It's a constitutional republic. And things are meant to go through the process. Things are meant to be difficult And it should be hard to change things because people are fickle. You can change your mind. You can be in a different mood from one day to the next. One national tragedy can cause people to have these knee-jerk reactions where they want to change laws and they want to change the way that everything is done just at the drop of a hat. And the people who designed the Constitution knew that we could be like that and didn't want us to fall into that volatility, but instead they wanted things to be well thought out and well agreed on if they were going to happen. So as far as I'm concerned, Congress can keep fighting about this wall. Hopefully Trump backs down from the national emergency because these national emergencies shouldn't be happening anyway. Next week, we're going to talk more about Venezuela and what's going on there because as we search for peace in North Korea, we're trying to get into a new war in Venezuela because why not? We might talk a little bit more about the Michael Cohen testifying against Trump. Um, The short version of that is there's not a lot going on there, but we'll see how things play out as they go along. And that about wraps it up for us. Now, I need you to do me a favor. Reach out to me and tell me what you think about this episode compared to the last couple of episodes that we've done. And I see your repeated listens popping up. San Jose, Chicago, Buffalo, Baltimore, Nashville. I see you out there. Do me a favor. Hit me up on Twitter.com. My username is Garrett again with just one R. And uh, Facebook.com, Garrett again as well. Let me know what you think about the podcast. And if you like this little bit of change to go through a handful of stories and and focus a little bit more on commentary than just the facts. Uh, With that, we're done. We're out of here. I'll catch you next time. Thanks. Thanks.